0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Winston Marshall. Winston is a founding member of the Grammy Award-winning band Mumford & Sons, in which he played lead guitar and banjo for 14 years. He left the band after writing a tweet that praised a book by Andy Noe. Andy No, many of you will remember, is a journalist that got beaten to a pulp by Antifa crazies, Anyway, Winston wrote a pretty mild tweet approving of Andy No's book on Antifa and as a result was pressured to leave Mumford and & Sons and eventually did. He now has a podcast called Martial Matters, which this conversation is also being aired on, so you can go check that out. We discuss Winston's time with Mumford & Sons. We discuss the influence of Jordan Peterson on his thinking and even on his songwriting. We discuss cancel culture in particular with regards to the music industry and Hollywood. We talk about my position on reparations for slavery. We talk about the differences between America and the UK and much more. So without further ado, Winston Marshall. Coleman, hi. Hi. Hey, Winston. Uh, Thank you so much. It's great to be on your show and welcome to my show. Thank you. Um,
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to have you on. I've actually been a great admirer of yours for quite some time and I think I told you this in person when we met in New York earlier this year but I first came across your writing uh, I think it was the Coilette pieces you wrote in 2018 and uh, they were a a voice it it was a voice when I was living in New York at the time actually and and at the time everyone was talking about it was the race literature then was uh Writers like Tanahasi Coates and Patrice Kahn Colors. And I was reading all of that. And then I read your Quillette um, pieces and a lot of references to Thomas Sowell and a completely different type of thinking. Um, and then, to my surprise, discovered that you were a rapper and a, uh, I shouldn't perhaps have been su- uh, uh, surprised as, um, uh, you know, uh, you're obviously very talented guy, but you went to Juilliard and, and you have this huge musical. Uh, background first and foremost. Um, I guess the surprise is that you're such a good, you were such an impressive writer, but also such an impressive uh, musician. So,
0: Yeah, I might be inventing this memory, but around that time that you would have discovered my Colette pieces, I think I remember someone showing me a picture of you with Jordan Peterson and you at this point were known to the world as the lead guitarist and ban- banjoist of Mumford and Sons. And Jordan Peterson was one of the few people that really supported me and amplified my early Quillette essays and was, was possibly the reason even you were reading them. So I, I could be inventing that memory, but I do have a faint glimmer of a memory of, of oh, this guitar player from Mumford & Sons took a picture with Jordan Peterson and people commented on that. Yeah, that,
1: that, that's right, yeah. Um, he came to our studio in mid-2018. Uh, we were making the record Delta and we had lots of people in and, and he was certainly someone that I discovered him through, I think, a Sam Harris podcast mm-hmm. he did and then he had this, there was one interview he did with Joe Rogan where he reconciled science and religion and metaphysics in a way that i'd never really heard before and it, and it and it really blew my mind and actually making that record he was really influential uh, particularly or well, certainly on me and and the and and p- push me and you know he talks a lot about um, sort of the, the line between order and chaos and from a musical point of view there's there's so much to that in in that you and not just in the music itself and that you need to leap into chaos um, to find them to, to find the magic but also in, in the songwriting process you need to put yourself in 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 that place that is chaotic to uh, you know it, it, even if it's internal chaos, chaos to to really um say the most important things or, or write the most important songs to you i know that sounds a bit grandiose but it certainly had a a big uh, he had, his work had a big influence on me, and it, yeah, and it dude, wasn't a, a political influence for me. It was, it was more philosophical, and
0: and right. yeah, in, in that sense. Did you happen to see the Beatles documentary with of, the Get uh, that eight Hours of you. yeah, yeah, the eight hours of rehearsal footage.
1: No, the Peter
0: Jackson. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty interesting from from a songwriting perspective and also interpersonal dynamics of a band. I'm curious what you would think as someone that was in. Uh, an extremely productive, touring, famous band for, what, 10 years? 14, yeah. 14 years. What you would have, I mean, you you should just watch it because there's clearly just a a love affair between Paul and John the whole time and a a kind of sidelining and condescension towards George Harrison. But the, the net result of whatever their thing is, just works out in the end. And it, it was very cool to get an inside look at a situation that, that you've probably been in a lot sort of composing with a band. I think for my audience, we should give a little history of your involvement with Mumford and & Sons and the reasons you chose to, left, to leave the band in, uh, was it 2021?
1: That's right. So in March... 2021 which was in the middle of lockdown i don't know what 12 i tweeted about a book now i've been tweeting about books throughout my lockdown it was one of sort of the themes of my social media and the book i tweeted about was andy knows unmasked which is a documentation of far left extremism in the states and somehow and i do sort of feel like it was an act of god it completely blew up and before
0: and just for people just for people's recollection when you talk about far left extremism we're talking a lot about places like portland and seattle portland where andy no has spent a lot of time and actually been assaulted by antifa protesters who he is infamous to and and hated by so go ahead yeah so
1: and and, and as you be more specific it's not antifa in history it's not antifa in 1930s london it's not antifa in 1960s Italy, it's Antifa, specific today in America. And it's those, it's Portland, and it covers the BLM riots through 2020. And that book, uh, then, that tweet, rather, kind of miraculously blew up. It was a congratulatory tweet because uh, it just had just been published. And I didn't have that many followers. And it blew up. And before long, it was a kind of segment on Tucker Carlson and The View. and I then put out an apology for putting out the, for the people who had been offended by the tweet. And after a few months of careful reflection, I decided that I couldn't, I hadn't anything to apologize for, except for pulling the rest of the band into this hot button issue, um, because Antifa and far left extremes of like trans stuff, like abortion stuff is a very divisive issue. And uh, I I want to just read the
0: tweet for people too. So they have context. Congratulations at Mr. Andy. No, finally had the time to read your important book. You're a brave man. And this is in a context where Andy had been very publicly beaten with scars all over his face. And I believe had to go to the hospital as a result of a beating that was started by Antifa. So, to say he is brave is to say he's a journalist going into the line of fire of violent people who hate him and have assaulted beaten him to a pulp before
1: well quite and in the period after my apology he and this I think was in April or may twenty twenty one he was beaten again, and when that he was in portland and there's and there's video footage of that beating and when I saw that like decided I really, I was right. He was a brave guy in reporting on that stuff. There's a a lot of accusations thrown at him that he's far right. And I couldn't find any actual evidence of that. And so I came to the conclusion that for me to stand by my apology would be to stand by a lie and uh, I didn't want to be part of that lie but at the same time I didn't feel like it was fair on the band for them to suffer and they would have suffered for example I was due to DJ at festival and I'd been pulled from that festival because someone else on the bill that they'd hoped to book had publicly criticized me and called me a fascist and radio sessions threatened to uh, pull the band so there were real life repercussions for that opinion and so I came to the conclusion I couldn't stand by my apology, but at the same time, uh, it wasn't fair on the rest of the band for them to suffer. And so my decision was to leave the band and stand by my convictions, my earlier convictions. Actually, what's curious for me about the story is this ties in with your song, Blasphemy, because in your song, Blasphemy, there's two parts to that. Uh, Firstly, it's that you have an opinions that you have suffered for amongst your peers. I think one of the lines is you got booted from an event or um, Mm -hmm. lost friends for having Mm -hmm. certain opinions. That's not like, that's not exactly the line, but it's something like that. Right.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, um, and then the second half of the song is the taboo opinion that you, I suppose the hill that you died on, which was, reparations, or rather being against reparations being paid in America to the descendants of those who suffered under the slave trade, mm-hmm. under slavery in America, rather. So for me, it's curious, you're curious to me, because that's very similar, or certainly a lot of echoes of my experience. And I suppose I've got two questions for you, and that is, is the issues of reparations, but then also the real life experience ostracized for having the wrong opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I guess take it in reverse order. My experience was definitely different than yours because you were in a famous band. I guess there's sort of three levels of cancellation. There's me having been a normal person and getting heat online for an opinion that people don't like. And, and that can be difficult. And you could even come with security issues, people making death threats and so forth. Then there's to be in your range of fame that you were in where you're really that stratum is the red meat of cancellation because you're famous enough to really have a name and for, for people to pay attention to the fact that you've done a tweet, but you're not Kanye famous where you're uncancelable and you have total fuck you money and fuck you fame. Or when Kanye says agree with it or not, when he says cancelable stuff, you can complain, but he's still Kanye. He's still going to drop an yes. album next month and everyone's going to listen to it. So you were in this in-between zone. Um, So I think that's probably the worst place to be in terms of the ability to express opinions about difficult subjects or controversial subjects. What's interesting to me is reparations is very polarizing in America. Uh, Race issues are highly polarizing in general. So I really, I stepped into an issue that I felt strongly about, but that I knew I had every reason to expect, based on my knowledge of American culture and my having lived here my whole life, that the people who hated my opinion were going to deeply hate it. So in in that sense, it's always shocking to get that level of hate for the first time, I think, for a human being. We're we're social creatures and you never quite know what it's like until you experience it, I think. Mm. But I did sort of know that I was stepping on the landmine and was choosing to do so because I felt very strongly about the issue. In your case, it seems Can we talk about- yeah, Can we ahead. talk
1: about the issue of reparations sure, yeah, yeah.
0: Absolutely, for my,
1: yeah. my audience? So you, not only did you write various articles, and I should say in, in this song, Blasphemy, it might be the only song... Certainly, the only rap song ever that actually quotes the spectator or cites the spectator, which seeing as I'm in the spectator building
0: right now, I feel like it's, I was it's to mention. Where does uh, it cite like the spectator?
1: <laughs> well, in the introduction to the song, there's a narrator saying he's written for a culette. Cool oh, the spectator that's right. Is, that's
0: right. Um, it is right.
1: I can't imagine um, there's another reference to the spectator. <laughs> It's in pop culture. Um, That's right. But so taking reparations as an issue, not only were you writing mm-hmm. in these magazines and papers, but you were you also went to the United States House Judiciary in June 2019 to argue Bill HR 40 uh, mm-hmm. to argue against reparations. So maybe yes. for my listeners, what's the story in America over reparations? What's the debate and and since 2019, what, how things developed?
0: So my position, it's not exactly right to say it was against reparations, full stop, because I believe in paying reparations to living victims of any government-sponsored atrocity, right? Living victims of, of the Holocaust. Many got reparations. I support that. So my position was actually that living victims of segregation and the Jim Crow system in the South, which we all now view as one of the great moral stains of our history. Someone like my grandparents, for instance, grew up under segregation in DC, it would make perfect sense to pay them reparations for having grown up an apartheid system that we now look back on with horror. To give someone like me reparations, for being six generations removed from slaves, that makes no sense. And there's no precedent for that in the history of reparations. Like once you miss the victims themselves or their children, I'm unaware of any serious precedent, much less a pattern of states Finding the sixth great grandchild of someone and cutting them a check in order to atone for the suffering visited upon their great grandparent. And the truth is, I think, the taboo truth is that the link between something awful that happens to me and that being vibration being felt by my great great, 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 great grandson That link is not at all clear. Causation and the way people's lives change in a single generation, there's no reason to believe actually that I am materially harmed. There's no way to know, I would say, that I'm materially harmed by the fact that my great, 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 great grandparents were slaves. And that's in no way to minimize the enormous enormous moral horror of slavery. It's just to say, I don't think that most black Americans are under the age of 40 under the age of 35 even. So that's the case I was really arguing against. And I guess just going, go ahead. What's the,
1: if you were to strongman the position for reparations, Mm -hmm. how would you articulate that?
0: Okay, well, the if I were to steal man the position in favor of reparations, I would say, well, in the first place, we've paid reparations many times before to many other groups, Japanese Americans, obviously Holocaust survivors. And the sum of crimes against black Americans from slavery and Jim Crow have created a circumstance where black Americans on the whole are less wealthy than they would have been had they not experienced those government-sponsored crimes, essentially. So It is up to the government to restore black Americans to where they would be but for slavery, but for Jim Crow, and reparations is the way to do that.
1: So, actually, where there's where you would probably, it sounds like you'd agree, is that there are communities in America who are the descendants of slaves who remain, and those communities remain poor communities, and that. Where they are economically is partly because of their history. And so that's a problem that America needs to deal with, generally speaking. And I imagine you would agree that, yes, whoever it is who's suffering left behind, there should be perhaps, or maybe you wouldn't, but maybe there should be government action, but it shouldn't be in the form of reparations.
0: I actually would not agree with the first statement. So I the problem of intergenerational poverty in America I view as a very complicated and independent problem. I don't think that you can say slavery and Jim Crow are the reason why there are X percent, maybe 20%, whatever the poverty rate is currently in the, in the black community. That's why it is. You know, everyone who's every black person who's poor because of slavery and Jim Crow. I do not believe that at all. I think Every single human being, every single American has a story of why they're situated where they are situated that has a lot to do with themselves and their parents, a lot to do with the hands that their parents were dealt. But every story, I mean, just think of any friend that you have who is who has a rags to riches story or something like the opposite, a kind of backsliding into the middle class story and how complicated any given one of those stories is. Not even a single one of those stories can be reduced to a single historical event from the 20th century, much less than 19th and 18th centuries. So to say that black people in America, poor black people in the hood in America today are there because of slavery and Jim Crow, that is a fashionable but completely simplistic BS. Sorry, that's not what problem. I'm proposing,
1: Yeah, uh, I, more I'm saying that it's one of the reasons might be that historically they come from that horrible background that i'm not saying it's the only reason but it might be one of the one of let's say a hundred reasons why
0: oh sure yeah no i mean totally i would totally grant that mm.
1: yeah i mean i sort of with you uh, my grandmother was a holocaust survivor and the idea that i would get reparations for what her family um, went through is doesn't seem quite right to me but i agree with you and in, uh, in the i think it was in the early 50s that germany Paid Israel reparations. And actually, only last year, I think it was in March 2001, the the Iraqi government initiated the Yazidi survivor law, where female and children survivors of the ISIS atrocities in northern Iraq were were paid reparations or or are being paid reparations as a framework for them to be paid reparations for the suffering. Mm -hmm. But that ties in with your argument very much that they are the direct sufferers of. They are the victims themselves rather than the
0: progeny of them. Yeah, an analogy I've made, I mean, as was true for the Japanese Americans who were interned in World War II, I would add. I've made an analogy before, which is that when you meet someone who's, say their parents had a really hard life, their parents were from poverty and struggle, but they themselves grew up with privilege. There are people in that position that sometimes try to assume the struggle of their parents as their own identity, right? Like sort of try to claim the, the street cred of their parents when in fact they as an individual don't really have any. And this has always come across as a kind of phony and a little bit insincere thing to do. I think most people sort of see through that kind of act as not the most honest way to have your identity. The honest way is to say, well, I grew up with a lot of privilege. My parents didn't. Just to fully represent that reality rather than try to assume, right? Basically Mm -hmm. what we are encouraging all of black America to do with this Reparations angle is to do that whole phony thing en masse to assume the suffering of people that were actually slaves, people that actually did suffer, and take on that mantle as if we ourselves suffered it, which Mm -hmm. is a pathological thing to encourage people to do.
1: Well, this obviously is an idea that has a real stronghold in your peers if you felt so compelled to write the song Blasphemy and presumably. This is the blasphemy you're talking about. And it's an idea that's that's so strongly held that you were ostracized from your friend group. Or is, is, so that, is that right? you have to believe the, the lyrics?
0: Over the years in New York, I've developed friend groups that are from very different walks of life. So the friend group that ostracized me was the Brooklyn underground hip hop community, which was mostly black, many of which came from poverty. Beyond either of those, the crucial variable is that they were basically their only concept of politics was pro-black politics. And so they saw me as going against pro-black politics. And that's extremely taboo in that circle. What I was saying may have been a controversial take in my other circles, but it wasn't necessarily a cancelable offense of with most of my friends.
1: So is that Brooklyn yeah. hip-hop scene a politicized scene? Is, is oh,
0: yeah, 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 for sure.
1: And so what is that the pro-black politics that you describe? What, what is that? It, what's, how would you describe it?
0: I would say it is roughly the, the political valence of Black Lives Matter. I'm not sure that they necessarily would like the Black Lives Matter global network, but it's pretty much grafted your stereotype of the politics of BLM, of a strong BLM supporter. That's kind of the center of the spectrum of that scene.
1: Hmm. Right. And so have you uh, then now making your music under Coldman had any other pushback? Have you found a new community which to create with or, or are you sort of creating a lo- alone from that? How is it now working in the music industry? Seeing as you're so publicly against the tide politically,
0: yeah. So I make all my rap music alone. Although I always have what I used to do with on the scene is kind of do shows together with other people. But I've always, by personality, liked to work alone. So that it hasn't been much of a sacrifice in terms of sort of recording with other people because that's not ever something I, I did. It sometimes, but but not very often. But yeah, not having access to to people that used to be my friends that I used to do shows with has been annoying. But yeah, I, you know, I've, like I said, I've, I've had a lot of friends in a lot of different walks of life from the jazz world to even the non-jazz world, classical and rock musicians to um, you know, as a writer, I've met a lot of people that have become my good friends. And so I have, I had a lot of people to, fall back on when I lost certain friends. I wasn't feeling lonely. Um, Mm. Or if I was, I had the capacity and resources to solve that by hanging out with other people if I wanted to.
1: Okay. So actually it hasn't impeded you, you're making music and it's just not going, it's, you found a
0: new sort of new avenue for it. New a new Yes, way to that's get right. Around. Yep. Yep. I found a new avenue. Okay. Well, that's, that's,
1: that's certainly encouraging. One thing that but I, but is-
0: I'm sorry, I will say I've had to, in many ways, I've had to create that avenue for myself. Whereas before I could walk down avenues that already existed. You know, I've had to really put my shoulder to the wheel and build my own musical platform build my own artist identity you know and just do all of that and it it required a lot more work than it might have in the past you know
1: so do you mean that on the so with label side and the kind of mechanics the business mechanics of it you've had to do more of the heavy lifting whereas normally you would be able to sort of outsource that stuff or rely on on other labels you've done it yourself
0: Well, let me formulate it actually more in what I'm trying to say is that because I testified before Congress against reparations, when I'm as a rapper now talking to publicists or, and I know you've had your dealings with publicists, but, you know, all the intermediaries in the music industry that you need to deal with in order to be an artist, I have to do 10 layers of damage control to get them to talk to me because they can Google me and see that I've had these canceled opinions, right? Mm. So is that impossible? No, it's, it's totally possible, but it just means there's that many more layers of resistance between me and anything I want to do in the mainstream music industry. And I've still done it, but behind the scenes, there's been like the cost in my time and effort and my manager's time and effort in busting through those walls has been immense thought about that a
1: lot because I've had a, a similar experience in that even if the music industry is very small and pretty much everyone knows each other and even if even the people that I know are sympathetic or agree with me on certain things that all of them are at the mercy of their clients so for example if you had a publicist or a, a manager and then you went on their roster they might be fine with it they might not have a personal problem with your opinions and be happy to take you on but in hiring other clients or their existing clients might see you on the roster and be, oh, why is that person on the roster? They're problematic. They're controversial. I can't work with you. And even if they don't do that, the fear that they might do that will will be a wall for people to work with. Let's say you or me, I imagine. That's one of my theories, I think.
0: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, well, this is something I wanted to ask you, which is, I've noticed that sometimes the fear of cancellation is outsized to the reality. And that's that's actually a feature, not a bug. That's how it works. This another analogy I've used before, I just rewatched the Pirates of the Caribbean movies this weekend because of Johnny Depp being so in the media. There's a scene in the first movie at the beginning where Johnny Depp pulls into this port and there's three corpses, rotting corpses of pirates, hung there by the British as a warning to the rest. And he kind of takes his hat off to his fellow pirates. Like, And, you know, the point of hanging those corpses there is not that most pirates get caught or should really fear getting caught. The truth is the vast majority of them do not get caught. The point of hanging the minority that do get caught in a very visible location is to create an outsized sense of risk so that you feel you're much more likely to for these things to happen to you And that creates, that's supposed to act as a a widespread deterrent, right? So that basically is how this works. It's like, is the person that manages you really going to lose business? Well, in most cases, maybe not. But just the small visible examples of people getting canceled are like, they act like rotting corpses for the rest of the world to see and to run from even if the likelihood of it happening is quite low.
1: I think that's a a superb analogy. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think the people who are hanging the corpses realize how effective it is. And that's why they're being so successful now Mm -hmm. in various ideologies. They know that they can scare people in having these scalps. They know that it, how effective it will be. And, but that even when they're not necessarily, there's not that many of them behaving that mm-hmm. way.
0: Yeah. So, so yeah. I think. You're right. right. Which leads me to, to my other question for you, which is, um, so as I was saying reparations, that's an issue I knew I was stepping into that had had a long history of being controversial, but. Merely, merely opposing current American Antifa. I mean, that—that that is somewhat controversial, like on a university campus. But in the wider society, looking at what the crazy people in Portland do today and post videos about doing, beating up journalists, like they seem crazy. They look crazy doing it. We're, you know, we're not talking about the wider Black Lives Matter protests necessarily. We're really talking about the hardcore Antifa guys that identify as, as Antifa, merely retweeting a book, congratulating an author that's been beaten up by them and is writing, writing a book against their practices and goals. It seems like such a tame thing to do. And I guess my question is, what would have happened if your bandmates had said, fuck the mob? All you did was tweet about a book that we actually, deep down, we all know we agree with. We kind of all know, maybe not all of us, but the vast majority of reasonable people do not agree with the folks that start burning buildings, that start throwing Molotov cocktails. We run the other way. We stay inside. We disagree with them by the very fact of our behavior, in fact. So what if they had just said, you know, what, fuck the mob. What you did, we're in a crazy moment. We're just going to hunker down. We're not gonna apologize. We're gonna let it blow over. And I think that the fans will see that you're not some fascist. Maybe a couple fans will leave, but I think our fan base understands who we are. What do you think would have happened if they had said that? Do you think Mumford and Fun would still be touring, like your albums records would still be selling, et cetera?
1: I think that's a really good question that should be asked to them. I think that's a question for them, not for me. Mm-hmm. But I what I do think what I do think the picture painted. By that question, is that yes, okay, wider society agrees that it's bad to throw, to try and burn down federal buildings. But the the str- the, the po- people who are pro Antifa, or let's say pro the extreme progressives, or no, I'll, I'll phrase it differently. I think that the progressive worldview and p- politics, or people with those politics, have real control over the culture in the way that there is not an opposition within the culture. So I think that when you look at the institutions of, let's say, the music industry or Hollywood, they are captured by these progressives and and I'd say extreme progressives in a way that there is a fear to speak out, which I don't Mm -hmm. think represents the whole country. Sorry, that wasn't a very clear answer.
0: No, 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 that, that, um, that makes sense. I mean, the sense I've gotten from talking to people in the TV industry, for example, is that most of them, the attitude, the word for the attitude they have towards the far left is terror. That's it. Like if you catch them in an honest moment over a beer where they have no reason to lie to you, they're comfortable. It's I'm terrified of cancellation, especially if it almost doesn't matter. But especially if you're a straight white male. It's just every decision I make, whether it's to greenlight a TV show, to sign an artist, is a decision that could lead to my cancellation. And those cancellations only seem to come from one direction, at least for the Hollywood folks. Very few of them are being cancelled for platforming communists or something like that, or having a show that's too left-wing.
1: Certainly not being cancelled for platforming communists, although as a side note, I would say that that I've, set, I've certainly seen conservatives and right-wingers happy to cancel almost as readily as
0: progressives. Oh, sure, yeah.
1: And I saw this particularly when I apologised for reading that book. Then a whole tro- a horde of, of uh, right-wingers saying, now I hope you get cancelled. So actually, I do think that the conservatives, a vast amount large groups of conservatives are not anti-cancel culture. They're just anti-themselves or the people who agree of them being cancelled.
0: Yes, uh, they are. They're, that's-, that's a really important distinction to make. They're not anti-cancel culture in, in principle. Many of them, the nasty online ones, especially, they don't like the fact that the culture is more controlled by the left, and therefore they're not really able to cancel people to the extent the left is able to cancel people because they control most of the culturally powerful institutions.
1: Yeah, then as to examples of people, let's say you mentioned people working in TV who are nervous to green light whatever show it is, or I think that they are right to be scared. Now, the difference in my position is that I've made money and I'm a big boy. I can, I'll be all right. But uh, if you... uh, don't have a huge amount of savings and you've got a mortgage and you've got to support a family the idea of actually losing all that mm-hmm. and the world in which you support but that that needs the income and your uh, your job it's not just losing a job you you lose a lot and so it's uh, totally understandable why those such people would be um, mm-hmm. nervous or scared
0: I never want to imply or certainly ever call anyone a coward for not speaking out because everyone is differently placed to deal with the consequences of speaking out. You might have a family, you might have no safety net. And so a lot of people that want to speak out against an absurd restriction on common sense arguments and ideas will end up listening to podcasts like mine or yours and supporting them as a way of doing their part when they can't actually afford to say what they think at their job or mm. worse among their friends. That's that's exactly. the scariest part is if you can't say what your thoughts are around the people that you're choosing to be around because you like each other so much, that's what friends are. It's like, if you can't talk to them, then we're sort of doomed.
1: And I remember as well, uh, Issue. my apology, a lot of political pundits saying, never apologize, you shouldn't have apologized. And I mm-hmm. got a bit annoyed at that, uh, because mm-hmm. I wanted to say, you don't fucking know what pressure I'm under here. Mm-hmm. And so and I, I've recently seen, interestingly, there's a, an English singer called Sam Fender, who's in his mid 20s. And he's uh, from Newcastle, he's a young Geordie lad. He's playing arenas here, makes great music, it's kind of Springsteen-y. And last week, He was photographed in the pub with Johnny Depp and Jeff Beck in Newcastle because uh, Johnny Depp's uh, on a tour of the UK as, I guess, a celebration tour. And he posted on Instagram uh, with a couple of heroes in the pub, something like that. And a couple of days later, issued an apology. I'm so sorry for calling him a hero. Essentially throwing Depp under the bus. And now, although I think that's a bit, uh, it strikes me as a, a bit Unfair on debt in that scenario. At the same time, I don't know what pressure Fender is under um, behind the scenes, and, and so I I wouldn't criticize him necessarily. Or you know I go I accept the fact that I don't know the whole story. But
0: as you know, we're the, the, talking about this apologizing thing. Yeah, I, I've encountered this never apologize idea mostly from the right, which I also think it's wrong, I think the right attitude is to apologize if and only if you actually feel, if and only if your considered self thinks you did something wrong. The part of yourself that reflects and has time to think, if that part of you believes you've done something wrong, that is exactly when you should apologize. If you have the freedom to act in a principled way, if you're thinking about your business tanking and you just have to make practical calculations, that's another matter but you should apologize when you mean it. And if you believe you did nothing wrong, then you should not apologize. The
1: only counter to that, and it's a, small, it's a small nuance, is that if you're at a dinner table, say, and you say something that you don't think is offensive, but you look around and you see someone aghast and you, mm-hmm. and you know that they're offended, you might say, oh, I'm so sorry, have I offended you? Tell me, you know, what, what have I said? You know, you would start by apologizing. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. What's offensive? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, there is unfortunately when you get into sort of tweeting things where tweeting, you might, it might be a similar response to that. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say what's the problem. But actually, when you tweet something, you're actually making a public statement. So, it's mm. kind of a Twitter maybe deceives you into thinking you're just chatting, but actually, you're making public statements. Right. Um, but that's a specific, you know, a little
0: nuance. Little really cool. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, I never, I've been in this situation a few times too where I just say something and I can see someone is just grievously offended by, by what I've just said suddenly. And I, I'm a pretty, I'm not a very confrontational person in those situations. Like I don't, I feel no need to get to the bottom of it at dinner. I'm happy to move on and talk about the weather. So saying I'm sorry in that situation is a way of signaling that I'm happy to let it go. If this is an emotional topic for you, I've got no idea what baggage you bring to the issue. And I respect that. And like, let's, you know, let's talk about the later. Latest episode of How I Met Your Mother, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but that, that's actually not the same meaning as I apologize for. Because a real apology to me, it, it only counts if you describe exactly why you were wrong. It's Like this is what I did that was wrong, and I did it because of this shitty, selfish reason, and there was no excuse for it. That's really that's a full apology. Is like a description of what you did wrong, why you did it, and why there's no excuse for it, and why it's nobody's fault but your own. That's really a full. Throated apology. A quick "I'm sorry" can just be a way of signalling that I'm happy to move on to a more congenial topic.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that. One thing that I think makes you stand out, particularly amongst the counterculture, uh, so to speak, it seems to me that the counterculture doesn't have much of a culture, and and it's rather just a lot of criticisms of the excesses of progressive thought yeah. and progressive. Culture, uh, as we've discussed already, dominates in Hollywood music, perhaps TV. You know Netflix. Well, actually, Netflix did not count out to the anti-Chapelle or Gervais critics. So maybe it's not so bad there anymore. But um, it seems to me, uh, and I, I was just read uh, Douglas Murray's latest books, which actually curiously relates to your song Blasphemy, for me, not only because it has a chapter on reparations or against reparations, but he also talks about Tiny Timper. I think is the, is the name of the white guy in America who was killed in a similar way to George Floyd, and, and you mm-hmm. refer to him in, in blasphemy. But the um, mm-hmm. thing about Douglas's book is that he criticises progressives, but his answer, it's, which he touches on a little bit, is to celebrate the great things about the West, the Western canon, Western literature and art and architecture, but, but it's only a small um, part of the book. And where you're different is that you are actually creating a culture. You are making music and you're not just writing and criticizing, you're actually offering something new. And struck me, uh, there's a guy called Andrew Doyle. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this um, guy. Yeah, but I, it's, it's,
0: he's the funny guy that does the parody character, right? He's the
1: man behind Titiania McGrath. Um,
0: yes. Which is I've, the, I've met him actually. You you've met him? Yeah.
1: And he um, is a very prolific writer. He's written a book on free speech. I interviewed him on this uh, podcast, on my podcast. And he has a show uh, called Free Speech Nation. He writes regularly. And I bumped into him the other day, curiously on holiday, and I learned that he was a playwright first and foremost. And he asked me the question, well, firstly, I I was like, how did I not know he was a playwright? And because he's so consumed by, you know, criticising or commentating on the culture wars or politics. And never occurred to me, that he I never knew that he, he was a playwright. And he asked me, that, you know, Winston, you're doing, you said something like, you're, you know, you're commentating on this stuff, you're writing, you're criticising politics, but what art are you making? And mm. what do you really want to be doing? It's a great question because there's so much energy going into criticising mm. progressive e- excesses, let's say, or, or the other side. But the counterculture doesn't seem to have much of a substantial culture, and yet you, you are one of the few people actually putting the effort into creating one.
0: Yeah, I remember one time I was at a museum many years ago reading the descriptions of every piece of artwork. And these were new commissioned pieces of art at some museum in New York. And almost every description of the new piece would include the language and philosophy of intersectional feminism in some way. The philosophy of intersectionality or critical race theory and words like anti-capitalist would get thrown around. In other words, the justification for the art, there was a philosophy behind that art, and it was all the same philosophy. It was all one I was familiar with from the halls of Columbia University in Barnard, where I was a student. And I thought to myself, well, isn't it strange that all of the art in this museum has the same philosophy? Shouldn't you expect that there would just be one painting that was a pro capitalist painting or something like that? Like, even (laughs) one artist that just kind of had the opposite philosophy and Did a doodle at least. And um, I started thinking about that and this gets to exactly what you're talking about. The question is sort of where is the conservative art? Where is the conservative music? There's actually a hilarious clip from Family Guy where it's it's almost like it's not quite a cutaway, but it's sort of like Peter Griffin talks to the camera about how, you know, why every Hollywood movie has a sort of vaguely liberal or left wing punchline like something like how many movies have been written about like the old guy stuck in his ways that like gets his mind opened to, you know, new people or new race. It becomes a little less racist or a little less homophobic or whatever. It's like where are the Hollywood movies where the punchline of the movie has a kind of conservative lesson, a nugget of wisdom that. A Douglas Murray or Roger Scruton would write about, about saying, you know, valuing traditions, not throwing away traditions too soon, or any of the other kind of nuggets of wisdom that that conservatives tend to focus on. And he's like, can you name a single movie that, that has that moral of the story? I, I think the truth is you actually can name movies like that, but it was an interesting comment on the perception of a political skew to the whole art and culture world. To me, I don't exactly know about this because it seems to me that there is a good deal of non-progressive art. I mean, so let's like, let's, (laughs) I think sometimes, go ahead.
1: The the immediate thing that comes to mind is that if you look at big comedy. The biggest comedians today in American Britain are Gervais, Rogan, and Chappelle. Mm-hmm. And the biggest shows are, or two of the biggest shows are South Park and Family Guy. Now, mm-hmm. it's not to say that any of those are conservative. In fact, you can say definitely, Chappelle is not conservative. But you might say, but certainly. Definitely, definitely all South Park
0: the, and Family Guy aren't conservative either. Definitely. Sure.
1: But yeah. they're certainly, they ridicule progressivism and yeah. so conservatives would enjoy and do enjoy those shows totally. and, and and those stand up so mm-hmm. it's weird to think of any art as being conservative art or even progressive right. art specifically right. although that does exist and like there are bands that are explicitly communist that have communist messaging mm-hmm. and um so you can have that does sort of exist but lower down apart from apart from those Big stars. There is. It's, people are very quiet about their politics if they're also yeah. creating art. There is also yeah. Artists. Sorry.
0: And I think some, sometimes the contradictions are so huge in front of us that we never talk about it. So, for example, progressives would see themselves as as broadly supportive of hip hop as a black art form. Kendrick Lamar got the Pulitzer Prize. I think well deserved. I think this new album is genius and he, he's incredible. But broadly speaking. There's nowhere you will you will find more misogynistic lyrics than in hip hop and in mainstream hip hop. And, you know, the objectification of women and all the rest, but the same progressives that are absolutely staunch on the anything relating to respecting women will never say a word almost never say a word about the the just like constant hose of bitch, ho, slut in every third rap song. Mm. And, you know, I, I've always found that to be kind of hilarious. I, I always thought it was really interesting to watch, you know, girls that went to Barnard and used they pronouns and um, didn't, you know, read one fake article about the wage gap and couldn't stop telling you about it and like wanted to bark at men to shut them up, but then would then go go to a, like a a rap concert in New York and listen to Trippy Red call her a slut all night and be like, this is great. And totally not a contradiction.
1: (laughs) There's a, a, curiously in in hip hop culture, American hip hop culture, there's a a history of celebrating rags to riches and celebrating wealth and money and Mm -hmm. glamour. And Mm -hmm. you, you know, it doesn't take much, To think of a a hip hop video with a bouncing car and uh, And jewelry, and and (laughs) so oddly, those are conservative ideas. um, And you know about free market and working and and working, you know, earning your money in in a way that's a conservative opinion. You don't hear rap songs about state, like let's have the state, you know, do more this and let's have uh, the state control healthcare or something like that. I'm not sure I can think of them as quickly. Right. So in a sense, you could say hip hop has a kind of conservative tradition to
0: it. Oh, totally. You and I wouldn't be the first to make that point that where in American culture are you going to find the most resounding defense of owning a gun, being ready to use it, making lots of money in a capitalist system and being kind of retrograde in your attitude to women? Not from Fox News, from mainstream Mm -hmm. hip hop.
1: <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you about your um, your book? I understand that you're writing, and that when we last spoke, you told me that it's called Racialized. I'm not sure how much you've gone public with it, but we can obviously cut this if you haven't, uh, if it's not time to talk about it.
0: Yeah, it may, um, may not be time to talk about the title. You can talk about the, okay. the content, I guess, because the title is something that can be reworked and negotiated with the powers that be, but, but yeah, I mean, basically I'm trying to, I'm trying to write a defense of the concept of colorblindness. Colorblindness is a dirty word. Now, if you Google colorblindness race, Google those two words so that you don't get articles about People that can't see colors, literally, you know, lack cones and rods in their eyes. You'll get, I mean, at least I got in my Google filter, 10 straight articles on why colorblindness is the wrong approach to race. And really the, the people that advocated that decades ago were wrongheaded and naive. And what we have to do now is really focus on seeing race, seeing me as, for instance, a black person and and you as a white person. And the way to a healthy equilibrium on race is to crank up the dial on our racial identities and and how much we care about what race we are. And not only that, but the idea is that's the only way to sort of get to get past Jim Crow and slavery and racial discrimination. It's like we, we can't do that if we're going to ignore race. That's the idea, the prevailing idea now, certainly in the elite. And that also comes with a whole package of race-based laws like, you know, affirmative action and COVID racial preferences and all the rest, you know, diversity and inclusion, hiring. So I'm trying to write a book that just makes the full case for colorblindness, that we need a national reset on race where we say, look, horrible things have been done in the past. Nobody's denying that. But the way to fix that is not to double and triple down on uses of race in the other direction, right? That's not the way out. An eye for an eye, as the saying goes, makes the whole world blind. So I'm trying to argue that we just need a national reset where we recommit to the principle of race is meaningless. Like skin color is, is an absurd way to an absurd variable to form your identity around. It's an absurd reason to ever feel divided from anyone else. It's absolutely stupid and meaningless and... All of the quotes and sentiments that have now become cliché from Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, they are cliché precisely because they are so true. And we risk sort of repeating those mantras and clichés to the point where we actually don't hear them anymore and don't use them as our guiding lights in our public policy and in our relationships with other people.
1: Yeah. It's so palpable for any English person to go to America uh, and, and it's always sort of been like this, even before the escalation in the cultural wars, I guess, from 2015. But in America, it's so people are defined by their race, even if it's not. It's it's talked about so much more than in Britain, where until recently, again, and, and certainly since George Floyd, uh, b- before that, race was it wasn't such a spoken about thing, and 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 the racialization of of Britain is. Or to see everything through the lens of race, is is seems so regressive and it's been quite shocking to see us adopt those that what I see as kind of American mindset. Do you think it's got, sorry.
0: It it, it slightly irks me when people say that only because, especially people from European countries where you've had a history where your ethnic groups and ethnic divisions have been purposely bounded by borders. And slaves and colonies were kept overseas, you know, for, for where there was, where in America, the challenge we faced was that when slavery ended, the slaves were living right next to the masters. <laughs> you know, that, that was a challenge that was never faced by European countries, with which kept their colonies hundreds or thousands of miles away. And so it's, it was a different challenge to begin with. And it was, you know, the difference in, in the American identity is that it's not, it was never supposed to be an ethnic identity. Whereas every European country could say pretty credibly, maybe until recently, that listen, Germany is for Germans. Um, that's just how it's done. France is for the French. We're an ethnicity and a country. For France is a little bit of a different case, but um, you know, Finland is for the Finns. We all speak the same language. We're all the same ethnicity, and we're different from the Swedes and we're different from the Germans. And that's why we have our own country. Um, we look different. We talk different. And and America was one of the only places to try and have the challenge of having a non-ethnic identity from the start. And it's been tough, and we, we haven't done a, a perfect job for sure, but it's, it's sort of a different challenge.
1: There's an immediate thing that jumps out there, particularly if you say, like, Germany's for the Germans, like, I'm sure, you know, obviously we think of how badly that went in the 20th century. But in America, it's not just the slaves and masters, or even all the whites, different, disparate ethnic groups, be they Italians or Germans or Irish, or then there's the Asians. They're all, it's a it's a nation of different ethnicities. So I, I totally understand that you had, uh, America had a completely different problem, set of problems to start with. But I, I'm not sure in Europe, the idea of it. I mean, yeah, you're right. I guess that ethnic groups are sort of initially by accident. But even then, when when those groups when nations evolved, ethnicity wasn't even necessary things that people were thinking about. It was sort of an accident it was inside the point.
0: Right. I mean, you could argue, though, that it was, it was masked by the... Construct of nations, like what? What is a nation in Europe but ethnic group that's fought on a particular piece of land and fought for certain borders? Right.
1: Yeah, but even in Britain, if Britain's not. Uh, there's so many different ethnicities over the thousand years that Britain's existed that that make up, and it's constantly changing. You know,
0: and, and there, you know, and there's been like bitter, bitter wars between all of them you know, as, as, as I'm sure you know, you know, just bitter, bitter hatreds between between the Irish and, and the Brits and, yeah. and the Scottish still kind of want to leave. And and so that, I mean, in, in other words, that's your version of our problem, I if see. it makes sense.
1: So are you hopeful that America can find or can get to a place of colorblindness? Do you think it's possible in a nation of so many different groups of So many different religions and different beliefs that they can be united under those liberal enlightenment ideas on which it was founded.
0: So it will never fully win. I I don't expect my principles to ever fully win out. What I do think is possible is for us to do much better than we've been doing. And for a critical mass among people with power, people in the elite who let's face it, are more the ones that are going to be reading a book of this sort to begin with. And who who are more of the ones that are creating this problem? Right? Like this, this problem of woke race obsession is overwhelmingly an elite problem. Mostly what working class people expect when they come to America is a facially race neutral system in which they can work their ass off. That's what people don't, you know, Asian Americans aren't expecting to come to a country where they're going to get Asian American benefits, right? They're expecting to come to a country that hopefully will not discriminate against them or hold them down and will give them a chance to come to live the American dream. Mm -hmm. And that's been the expectation for hundreds of years in this country is I'm going to go to a place where I won't be persecuted that has a legal system in place that will treat me as an individual and I will be able to fight my way in this system. But what, what I would hope is that a critical mass of people in power will be able to say no to race obsession and to say yes to enlightenment ideals and procedural fairness and treating people as an individual rather than a member of their racial group. And the more people do that, the more we are steering our ship through the storm in a way that will allow it to survive and will minimize interracial, interethnic conflict. So I so to answer your question, no, we're, we're never going to be perfect or anything close to it. But I view what I'm advocating for as someone who's kin to someone who's advocating for peace rather than violence. Mm. You never actually expect to zero out the violence, but at the very least, you want to know that you're going in the right direction, right? And what I fear we've lost is that no one even talks anymore about the desire to be a colorblind nation. In the 70s and 80s and 90s, you had people like Thurgood Marshall. You even had radicals like the Black Power Movement in the 60s. When they wrote their manifesto for the movement, they said, yeah, eventually we would like to become colorblind. But on the way there, we're going to have to do a lot of racial reckoning and seeing race, right? Now you don't even hear that. You don't even hear the first caveat where they say, eventually we want to be colorblind. It's only the second half, which is we want to see race forever and ever. So if I could even get more people to admit that eventually we want to be colorblind, we want to more and more push people away from identifying strongly with a race of human beings, a subcategory of human beings, um, then I will consider it a success. Well, I fully
1: support you in that.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: Colman, Thank you so much for uh, speaking uh, with me. And, absolutely,
0: Winston. Um, thank you so much for coming on my show as well.
1: I feel very honoured to be uh, speaking and, and on your show, and I uh, hope we can speak again. And absolutely, my, I'm going to treat my listeners to your song, "Blasphemy," um, awesome. so that they can hear your artwork and hear your your music rather. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure.
0: Amazing. But before you go, can you tell my podcast listeners how to listen to your podcast? Absolutely.
1: So. I have a podcast called Marshall Matters here at Spectator, and you can listen on all the usual podcast outlets and on YouTube, where I interview people across the creative industries to find out what indeed is the state
0: of the arts. Awesome. Thanks, Winston. Thanks, Coleman. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, ColemanHughes.org and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.